So, where are we tonight? What book are we in? Anybody know? Philippians. Philippians was last week. Were you here? You weren't here last week, were you? That's right, you weren't here. So you have an excuse, legitimate excuse. You get a pass. Heath taught Philippians last week and did a great job. Um, So what comes after uh, Philippians? Colossians. So we're in Colossians. So let's turn there. Um, I'm just going to ask you guys to be in Colossians. We're going to be all over Colossians tonight. I'll reference a few others, but you guys can camp in Colossians. So open to chapter 1, and we're going to get started in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Would somebody like to read that, verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1 of Colossians? Somebody, anybody? Casey? Chapter, chapter one, fifteen through 18? Yes. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things are pulled together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that everything Tonight we're going to talk about the preeminence of Christ. Um, now I love to teach, and normally as it gets closer to my lesson, as I've been studying more and everything, I just get more and more excited, and I'm just chomping at the bit. I'm ready to teach. Um, this book has been different, and it's honestly, there's been more of like a, a pressure and a burden. And it's not because um, it's not because I'm like nervous of the crowd, or it's not even because like I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a great teacher. But I, it's not because of anything like that. It's because of the subject matter, the preeminence of Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The subject matter is so high, and I'm not alone in that at all in feeling that way. And even as I've studied more um, and looked at what other men have to say about this, I find them saying the same thing. Even like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who lived in the 1800s. How many of y'all know who Charles Spurgeon is? Have heard the name? Um, They call him the Prince of Preachers. And listen to what he said about trying to teach and, and grapple with the person and work of Christ. He says, Hope not, my brethren, that the preacher can grapple with such a subject. I'm overcome by it. In my meditations, I felt lost in its lengths and breadths. My joy is great in my theme, and yet I'm conscious of a pressure upon brain and heart. For I'm as a little child wandering among the mountains, or as a lone spirit which has lost its way among the stars. I stumble among sublimities. I sink amid glories. I can only point with my finger to that which I see but cannot describe. May the Holy Spirit himself take of the things of Christ and show them to you. If Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, feels that way, I should certainly feel that way. And that's honestly what we should all feel 
as we look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we should all feel. Like we are at the foothills of this enormous mountain that goes way up into the clouds. And you think, well, I'm going to climb this mountain and surely above these clouds is going to be the peak. And you climb above the clouds only to discover you're still in the foothills. That this mountain goes on and on and the more you climb it, the bigger it gets and the smaller you get and the more infinite it is. Like Spurgeon said, all I can do is point at what I see but cannot describe. And it is the burden or should be the burden of every gospel preacher and teacher to in his study and prayer to go as high up the mountain of the glories of Christ found in God's word as the spirit will take him and then to come back down and to shout to everyone what they've seen. Look at him. Look at Christ. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he wonderful? Look at his work of creation. He spoke it into existence by the breath of his mouth and he upholds it by the word of his power. Look at his character. Look at his attributes. Look at his even greater work of redemption. Look at him. He's glorious. I'm shouting at y'all tonight about Christ, but there have been men far higher up on that mountain that have been shouting back at me, seeing more of the beauty of Christ than I have and pointing up to him. That's the burden of every teacher. And so, just like Charles Haddon Spurgeon implied, every time we do this, we're going to fail. We're going to fall short. I will not be able to explain to y'all tonight or even really scratch the surface of the glories of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So that's why we ask the Holy Spirit to teach us. So let's do that now. Father, I come to you and I thank you so much for your word. That it is exactly what we need. It is sufficient. At the same time, Lord, we are finite beings. And you and the work that you've accomplished are infinite. They're beyond us. Lord, I pray as Paul prayed for the Ephesians that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened tonight and that we would know what is the hope of our calling. That we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the length, the breadth, and depth to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, we need you to do that. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So let's start with the definition of the word preeminent. How many of y'all have heard that word before, preeminent? Um, it's, it's only used at, that I'm aware of in this way, this one time um, in the New Testament. And the word has this definition. To be first, to have first place, superior, or surpassing. And it's easy to look at this and say, okay, so 
put Jesus first, right? You know, he's, he's my first priority. I'm going to put him on my list. He's my first priority. Got it. Preeminence of Christ. And this is where words and definitions start to fail us because that's not the idea. And as Paul works through this in Colossians, you'll see it's way more than that. He's superior to the list. He isn't on a list. He is the list. That's why Paul didn't say, make sure you check off a box and pray and ask the blessing before you eat and glorify God and then go and eat and drink. What did he say? He said, no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. He's not something to be checked off of a list. So preeminence means he is first place and superior in the same way that he is holy. And what does holy mean? What are some definitions that we throw around about the set apart? Yeah, other, set apart. That's what holy means. He's completely other. He's not like us, just bigger. He's something completely different. He's an other, completely other kind of being. So let's read through this again and think about these things. I'm going to read that 15 through 18, and then we'll, we'll just walk through what he says here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So let's start at the top. He's the image of the invisible God. God is spirit, and Jesus is man. Like John said, that which we touched, that which we, he, we, he walked on this earth as a man. And even though his glory was veiled, he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. We talked about this in Sunday school a few weeks ago. He loved what should be loved. He hated what should be hated. He was the perfect God-man. He showed mercy when it was right to show mercy. He rebuked when it was right to rebuke. He had power over his creation, power over death, power to forgive sins. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Then it says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now some, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, twist this to mean he's a created being. But he makes that clear in the next verse. It says, for by him all things were created. He is creator, not creation. He is holy. There's only one creator, and that's God. He's set apart from all of his creation, and Jesus is God. So we'll see this again later on in this passage. What does it mean that he is the firstborn of all creation? The use of the word firstborn is a way of saying he is, again, superior. He's surpassing. He's of a different quality. It's not talking about chronological order. He's of a t totally different type. He is over and superior to his creation. All right, moving on. Next line says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So, for by him all things were created first in heaven. So, this word heaven can mean um, have you ever heard of the first, second, and third heaven? 
Do you know what that means? Like the first heaven would be the sky, and then the second heaven would be outer space, and then the third heaven, which is like what Paul said, I was, he was caught up into the third heaven and saw things that couldn't be or too wonderful for words. Um, that would be like the place where God dwells. Well, this, I believe, is talking about all of them. It's talking about the sky, outer space, and the place where God help, dwells. So he created all things in heaven. He's saying, I believe, that Christ created everything in them. Starting in heaven where God dwells, he created all the angels, the mighty ones, like Michael and Gabriel, the archangel, and all of the hosts of heaven. Jesus created them. Think about this. Even the greatest angel, I think we could say that at the time, he was the greatest angel. And who is that? Lucifer? How about this? Satan, according to this, was created by him and for him. Just like all the other hosts of heaven created by Jesus and for Jesus. He created all the stars moving down to the, um, into outer space. Uh, he created all the stars, the ones we have discovered and the ones we haven't discovered, and all of them are declaring his glory. They were created for him, every star. All the galaxies, the ones we have discovered and the ones we haven't discovered, all of them made by him and for him. And in this one galaxy that we do know a little bit about, called the Milky Way galaxy, he made a sun and a solar system around it. He created Mercury, the planet Venus, and then just far enough from the sun to support life, he created Earth. And positioned perfectly, by the way, so that we have the best view into the Milky Way galaxy for it to declare his glory. All of those things were made through Christ and for Christ. He is preeminent in the heavens. Then he says on earth, so the earth itself, whatever the core of the earth is made of, Christ made it and it's for him. All the ocean depths and everything that is in them was made by him and for him. Every creature that is on this earth was made by him and for him. Every plant, every tree, every rock, the Rocky Mountains, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, the Northern Lights, all made by him and for him. Every human that has ever lived was created by him and for him. And each and every person in this room was made by him and for him. Then he says things visible and invisible. Physical things we can see and things we can't see. We thought the atom was as small as it got until we realized it was protons, neutrons. Anybody know the last one? Electrons. Protons, neutrons, electrons. And every proton, every neutron, and every electron was made by Christ and is for him. 
the spiritual realm that we can't see was made by him and for him. Then it says, thrones and dominions and authority. Every earthly king that has ever been was created by Christ and for Christ. He raises them up for his glory and he tears them down for his glory. Pharaoh was created by Christ and for Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Then it says that he is before all things. He's the great I am. He is self-existent. He is not influenced by anything. He reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. I'm self-existent. And then later on, he reveals himself again to Moses. Moses said, show me your glory. What is it about you that is so glorious? You know what he said? I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know what he meant by that? God alone has free will. He's the only one. Think about it. You can say you have free will. You are influenced by so many things. God is influenced by nothing but his own sovereign good pleasure. There's none like him. Not one. He's completely other. He's completely preeminent. Jesus is preeminent in creation, is what Paul is saying by those statements. Then Paul says this, he is the head of his body, the church. He is the head. He's the decider, the controller. The head controls the body, doesn't it? The head is what commands the rest of the body. Take away the head. Do you see any headless people walking around? No. If you take away the head, there is no life. Jesus is the life of the body. The head tells the heart to beat. The head directs every motion of the body. Listen to this. I don't know that I'd really thought about this until I started thinking about just the implications of this. Where do all the nerve endings report back to in your body? Your brain, to your head. Where is it felt, really? I mean, it's happening here. The damage is happening here. Where do you feel it? In the head. Christ is the head of his body, the church. Think about that. Whatever the body experiences, Christ feels that. He is the head. We are his body. Why did Jesus say to Saul on the, to Damas on the, Saul on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? Saul had been persecuting the church, his body. He said, you're persecuting me. It was as if he were persecuting Christ himself. He is the head of his body. Think about this. The breath of life comes through where? 
the head. The bread of life comes through where? The head. Christ is the head of his body, the church. He is preeminent in the church. Then he says he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, I think Johnny brought this up a few weeks ago. How can he be the first from the dead when others were raised before him? Like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? And it says here he's the firstborn from the dead. Again, like we've already said, this is, talking, this is not talking about chronological order. It's talking about he's the first of his type. Think about this. Can you lay your life down? I don't mean can you jump off a bridge or jump in front of a car. Do you have power over your own life? Do you hold your life in your hand? Does it spring forth from you? No. Your life is borrowed life. We read earlier, it is upheld by Christ. He is upholding all things, including your life. You cannot command your body to die. Have you ever thought of that? You can't just make it happen. You do not hold the power of your life in your hand. But there was one who actually had the power of life in his hands, and that was Christ. Listen to what he says in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And listen to the words here. I have authority to lay it down. Only Christ held his own life, had power over his own life. Only Christ was able to lay it down. He's the only one that had authority to do it. And think about it. He did it. He laid his life down. What other man would do that? None. Other Christ. He's preeminent. He is surpassing. He's unlike any other. And then he says, and I have authority to take it up again. Christ alone could lay down his life and take it up again. It also speaks to this. Did Jesus deserve to die? No. If he had deserved to die, he would have stayed dead. Because it says in Ezekiel, the soul that sins must die. He didn't deserve to die. And the resurrection was God's stamp of approval, a vindication for Christ that he was a perfect, spotless sacrifice. This is what Paul is talking about. You ever hear verses like this? You're like, what, what does that mean? When Paul said he was raised for our justification, what, what does that mean? It means this. If Christ was not raised, it would mean he was not a perfect sacrifice and that God did not raise him up and accept his sacrifice and we would not be justified. We would have no more sacrifice for sins and we would not be justified in his presence. All right, he, so the last point there being he is preeminent in his death and in his resurrection. He is the first, he's the first of that type and he's the last of that type. There will be no other death and resurrection like the God-man Jesus Christ. 
Now, we've looked at that section, and he ends that section, by the way, um, with saying that in everything he might be preeminent. Everything. We've covered creation. We covered some of redemption. We covered a lot of things in that passage. Paul lists just bam, 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 bam. It's not everything. So he just sums it up at the end, says that in everything he might be preeminent. Now I want to skip through the book of Colossians and show you how Paul shows the preeminence of the person and work of Christ in all things pertaining to our Christian walk. So I was talking to someone about this series as we were getting it started, not someone that goes to the church, someone else. And I was talking about what we were doing, that we were doing this Road to Emmaus series that... Uh, you know, like Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he was talking to those guys and he said, hey, all the scripture points to me. And so we're taking every book of the Bible and showing how it points to Christ. And, the guy, and as I was telling the guy this, I'm all excited and I was like, man, it's so good. It's the best series I've ever been a part of. I loved it. And he's like, man, he said, but you're going to miss out on all the practical stuff. And I just shook my head because there is nothing more practical than the gospel. It has implications that go into every part of our life. And that's what Paul does here. Um, just like Heath said last week, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not just justification, but sanctification as well. We are sanctified by the gospel. And, I'll, and, and it's, we don't have time to hit all of them, but let's turn, uh, you're still in chapter 1. Look at verse uh, 4 through 5 of chapter 1. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So why do they love? What does it say there is the, the love that you have for all of the saints because what does he put there? Because of what? Beginning of verse 5. Because of the hope laid up in heaven. Who or what is our hope? Yes, all of our hope is in Jesus. Why do they love? Because of the hope laid up in heaven. Christ is our hope. He says in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And so we are in union with Christ and all those who are in union with him. This should inform and motivate our love for each other. This is what he ties it to. The person and work of Christ. Our love is tied to the person and work of Christ. So the point is, Christ is preeminent in our love for each other. I want you to think about these things. Heath challenged you last week with that. 
Use your mind. Think about these things. And in Christ. And so to hurt someone in the body of Christ is to hurt Christ and to hurt yourself. Think about that. It's really easy, and I think at any age, but especially at this age, it's really easy to get offended, to, um, to take an offense, to give an offense, to um, let things come between people. Um, think about it. Let this be applied in your life. Let the gospel be applied in your relationships. Christ is preeminent in them. Colossians 1.24. 1.24. Paul's ministry to the church. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, the church. So he talks about sufferings for your sake, for the sake of the body. Paul said in Philippians that he would know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. Who did Christ suffer for? His body, the people. And Paul says in verse 24 that his own sufferings are for the sake of the body. Now, we don't have time to break this down, but what he's saying, if you put it all together, is that suffering is from Christ, it is with Christ, and for his body, and for him. It, he's preeminent in suffering, is what he's saying. Colossians 2.8. Y'all turn there, Colossians 2.8. Somebody want to read that one? Colossians 2.8. Go ahead, Aiden. The word philosophy means the love of wisdom. Do you know that? That's what philosophy means. The love of wisdom. Is there anything wrong with loving wisdom? No. Matter of fact, he mentions wisdom five times in this book. We should love wisdom, but not wisdom that the world has. Not that is according to the world, but a wisdom that is according to to Christ. The Christian's loving of wisdom, listen to this, the Christian's loving of wisdom should be a loving of Christ because he says in Colossians 2-3 that in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is preeminent in philosophy and wisdom. The universities do not have a corner on wisdom and philosophy. The Word of God in Christ does.
He is preeminent in those things. Everything outside of the wisdom of Christ that is according to the elemental principles of the world is foolishness. Colossians 3, 14 through 17. Actually, I think we're just going to read um, 16 right now. Who would like to read Colossians 3, 16? Mm-hmm. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ. Does that just mean the red letters in your Bible? Is that what that's talking about? No, what is that talking about? And we're not going to unpack it all at all tonight. We're just going to skim over the surface. Um, definitely all the words in the Bible, right? I mean, he mentioned Psalms there. It's all his word, and he was the very word made flesh. Christ is preeminent in all the scripture. There again, he is not a He's not on a list of heroes in the Bible. It's not Jesus, David, Gideon, Samuel, Daniel. No. He's preeminent. It's Jesus, and they all point to him. It's all about him. He is preeminent. That's what we're doing in this series. It's what we're trying to do. We're standing up here stammering, trying to show you the glories of Christ in the Scripture and praying that your hearts burn for Him. So let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, We don't have time to unpack this at all, really. But read it, love it, memorize it, hide it in your heart. Pray that the Lord opens your eyes to its meaning. As Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. That your eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. God answers that prayer. He answers that prayer. Stay in His Word. Love His Word. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love Him with your mind. Fill your mind with His Word. Memorize it. Love it. Treasure it. And then he says in verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, He's preeminent in everything, so whatever you do, do for Him. Uh, Colossians three twenty-three through 24. Again, whatever you do, that's what he starts with. Work heartily. Now in this context, he's talking about whatever you kind of like you do for a job or whatever you do for a hobby or whatever it is you're doing with your hands, whatever work you're doing. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See what it says? You are serving the Lord Christ, whether you acknowledge it or not. He is Lord whether you bless Him or curse Him. 
So do it unto him. Consider it to be unto him. Think about it. When you're working, think, this is for the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that I can do this. Thank you that I can do this as unto you and glorify you while I'm doing it. And it's like Tim says all the time out there, without Christ, nothing has purpose. With Christ, everything has purpose. Colossians 4.1 Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Christ is preeminent in all of our relationships. He's, he's tying all this, pulling it all back to Christ. He's preeminent. He's preeminent. No matter what it is, Christ is preeminent. And we could go on and on. Um, he, there's one verse, I, I wasn't going to mention it, but I will. He says, don't let anybody judge you in regard to a new moon or a Sabbath or a festival. For those things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So whatever religious observance or anything he's talking about there, the substance belongs to Christ. He's preeminent in them. All right, so now let's turn. That's kind of an, an overview of the book now. Now I want to kind of close in this, um, in this last... Let's go back to Colossians 1.20, and we're going to flip around a little bit. But um, it's this verse that, it's one of these verses you kind of, you scan over it and you're like, wait a minute, did that just say what I think it said? And then you read it and you're like, it does say that. And you're like, well, what does this mean? See if you catch it. See if there's anything in here that you go like, huh. What does he mean by that? Colossians 1.20 And through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Anything jump out at you? It's like, wait a minute. Is that all, really all? What does that mean? Is it saying, it said, what does it say here? What things are going to be reconciled to him? What does it say? All. By the blood of his cross. Now is this really saying that everyone, everyone will be reconciled to him in that if you're reconciled by the blood of his cross, it means you're saved. It means you're a child of God. Is everyone going to be saved? No. Scripture does not contradict itself. And so we, when we interpret Scripture, we always start with the most clear statements and work out from there. So we know not all people will be reconciled by His blood. So let's, what you do, and this is how you study the Bible, you let the Bible explain itself. You let it commentate on itself. So if we go to Philippians 2, um, hold, I lied. Hold your, I'm going to make you flip here. Hold your finger in Colossians 1, because I want, I want y'all to see this. And then turn to Philippians 2, 10 through 11.
Philippians 2, 10 through 11. <clears throat> so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a list of places in each of these two verses. And there's one difference. And that difference is the key to understanding this verse. Can anyone see it? Anyone see the difference? He lists two places in Colossians and three places in Philippians. Anybody see it? You got it, Aiden? You've always got it. What is it? So under the earth. In Philippians, he adds under the earth. What is that a reference to? Hell. And eventually the lake of fire. So what he, he says, every knee will bow. Every knee, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that means every person that has ever lived will bow their knee to the preeminent Christ who is Lord of all. But not everyone will be reconciled by the blood of his cross. Why do you need to be reconciled to God by Jesus' blood? What stands between you and God that must be taken out of the way? Sin. Sin. He tells us in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, look in this. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By, this is how, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what stood against us? And I'm going to trick your mind here in a minute. What stood against us? A record of debt, right? A debt of what? You already said it. It was, a, it was sins. It was sins. Trespasses. We have broken God's law. It's sins. Sins against a holy, perfect creator God. An infinite debt because he is an infinite being. And how was the record of debt taken out of the way? It was nailed to the cross, right? That sin, he nailed it to the cross. So what was nailed to the cross? So was Christ nailed to the cross or was our sin nailed to the cross? Yes. Yes. Tim talked about this a few weeks ago and did a great job and just brought this verse to life. It's one of my favorite verses. He, the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And that's the same thing he's saying here. He took our sin, he took that record of debt, and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed Christ to the cross. And because Christ was our substitute, and on Him, it is no longer on us. It's been taken out of the way. This preeminent being, this God-man, surpassing in every way, glorious beyond measure, became a man and took your record of debt that stood against you on the cross. And He died for his elect, for his chosen 
people. He canceled that record of debt so that God could remain just and still forgive a people for his glory. And so what does it mean that all things will be reconciled to him in heaven and earth? The Bible tells us in Revelation 20. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Those are the people in Philippians under the earth. They will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But they will not be reconciled by the blood of his cross. And then I saw a new heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a pride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he, they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everything on heaven and earth. This is where and when that happens. And that is our hope. Can you imagine a place where every single thing is reconciled by the blood of Christ? No sin. Nothing. That's our hope. That is the, that's the hope that he's talking about in here. For an eternity to revel and wonder at the person and work of Jesus Christ. To go further up and further in to the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. I use that further up and further in. Are there any Narnia fans in here, anybody that's read all seven books, any diehard, a few. I love when they get to the heaven in this, that's represented in this place. Aslan comes to him and he says, let's go further up and further in. And that's how he describes it. It's just this never ending further up, further in into the glories of that place, and they're glorious, not because of a what, but because of a who, because of Christ. We've just scratched the surface tonight. That's all we've done. But all I've tried to do tonight, and all that each of us these Wednesday nights are trying to do, is make your heart burn for Christ. To make you want to go up that mountain yourself and pray and get in His Word and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you, show me Christ. Make me more like Christ. Conform me to His image. That's what we're trying to do and that's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we thank You so much for Christ. Lord, words fail us. Our minds fail us. Our finite minds cannot comprehend um, the glories of Christ. But what we do comprehend of the gospel and of the person and work 
of your son blows us away. It passes knowledge, like Paul said in Ephesians. Lord, I pray that each person in this room, that their hearts would burn for Jesus. That they would go further up and further in to the glories of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In your word, on their knees, day by day, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, day by day by day by day. And this comes from your spirit. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you so much for Christ and praise in his strong name. Amen.